Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Good afternoon, listeners. This is the Dogs Program, and today we are an All Ladies Day uh, program because tomorrow is International Women's Day, and aren't we proud to be here? Now, there is a press release for the dogs this week, and remember, as we tell you every week, we are here about public education, education which is public in purpose and outcome. Above all, it is public in access, and we've never needed it more than we do for the coming generations. And it should be public in ownership and control, no public-private partnerships. Thank you very much. It should be the only one that is publicly funded because it is certainly the only one in Australia and around the world that can possibly be publicly accountable. And our governments, if they even pretend to be democratic governments, should be giving us a first-class public education for every child in this country. Now, this is possible. We know it's possible. It's, it's possible in Germany. It's possible in Finland. It used to be possible in Australia until state aid was given to private schools in 1964, and we're here to fight to make it possible again. We have a website at www.adogs.info, www.adogs.info, and here is our press release 588. Sectarian schools have to be paid before public schools get the crumbs. Dr Ken Boston, a member of the Gonski Committee and erstwhile Victorian Public School Administrator, has lashed out at the Andrews government, saying its new school funding law will do nothing to fix disadvantage and inequity in Victorian classrooms. Under legislation that passed Parliament last week, Catholic and independent schools will receive at least 25% of the state government funding given to public schools. And Dr David Zignia, the Faculty of Education at Monash University, has also complained that the Labor government's linking of state funding of private schools to public school costs, which is an inflated cost, by the way, it includes a whole lot of private school um, uh, funding in it. It's not so much funding, but uh, services that are provided to private schools and to the library and things like that. It's included in all of that has betrayed the basic principle of the Gonski funding model, that future increases in government funding for private schools should be determined by actual need. So Gonski said that future funding for private schools should be determined by actual need. 
Well, he was hopeful, wasn't he? Because they all say they're needy. It's just that they're very greedy. He points out that the move is in sharp contrast contrast to that of the New South Wales government, which repealed the link between state government funding of private schools and public school costs and replaced it with a needs-based funding system. So much for equity. And listeners, I'm sorry to say that even a Liberal Party government, or at least a Liberal Party government with a country party uh, Minister for Education, has got more time for public education than a Labor Party government here in Victoria. And I think people should be aware of that. That's how bad things are in Victoria. Public education has always been stronger in New South Wales than Victoria, so the fighting here has to be done longer and harder. Now, dogs say they're all crying. Isn't this terrible? Uh, What's happened to our needs policy? We want funding on the basis of needs. Dogs say, what else did you expect? How can you have equity or equality of opportunity or even opportunity, genuine opportunity, educational opportunity for children in unequal schools that pick and choose children on the basis of religion, wealth or anything else? If you give state aid to such sectarian or private schools, you will get inequity. It follows as night follows day. The wealthy private school lobby, spearheaded by the Catholic lobby, has ensured that before any child in our public schools has public money sent their way, the sectarian schools must be paid off. After all, the poor are always with us. Mm -hmm. And for wealthy private schools, the poor must always remain with us. Otherwise, they might be worth a few crumbs. Who will be the goats and scapegoats to their sheep? And what else do they have to sell in a market ideology? Except that they produce sheep rather than goats. Mm -hmm. As we often say here on this program, they're selling the first-rate ticket to heaven and the good job. The problem is that there's no security about heaven for the wealthy. I mean, there's something I think about... uh, about a needle and a thread, or a needle and a camel, I'm sorry. Yeah, the eye of the needle. Anyway, so what else do they have to sell? Uh, The linking of state aid to private schools and inequity is just plain logic. It's also the lesson of both recent experience, 1964 to 2015, and that of the 19th century, 1805 to 1880, It has been proved also by other countries. Finland, Germany and other successful nations don't siphon off public funds and the educational opportunities of the majority to the private sector. So if Mr Gonski and others want to improve the educational opportunity of the majority of Australian children, they will just have to learn to confront these people. They will have to confront the Catholic Education Office and all of the other religious people, including the um, the rabbis and uh, Haleybury College, uh, the parsons, priests, parsons, imams, rabbis, they have to learn to confront them and say, go away. 
We oppose state aid to private schools outright. If they want them, they can pay for them. So uh, that is the dog's position and we are waiting for the people who are concerned about public education and so-called needs and inequity to wake up. Now this weekend is International Women's Day. So um, we're going to talk about women in education and I'd like to remind you about the fact that at the moment in Victorian unionism and in the federal sphere, the teacher unions have got ladies at the helm. We used to have Angela Gavrilatis and he was great, but now we have a lady called Corina Haythorpe, who's the federal president um, of the Australian Education Union. And on the 26th of February 2015, she made a speech at the conference. And um, it's a very interesting speech. It tells you something about this lady. And I'd like to read some excerpts from the speech to tell you about her experiences. And then I'm going to get Dale. We're all ladies here today to tell you about her experiences in education. So uh, this is what Karina Haythorpe had to say to the teachers of Australia. As part of our role as educators and advocates for social justice, we continue to commit our passion, our voice and our resources to achieving better outcomes for the culturally rich and diverse First Peoples of the Kulin Nation and every nation on whose land we walk, learn and educate. So she welcomes the Aboriginal teachers and other people to her conference. Now, Karina continues, and I think you'll find this all very interesting because I think Karina's a really nice lady. She says, welcome to our conference, to our, her Aboriginal uh, members. It's certainly been an interesting 12 months since we've gathered here, and that's to all of the teachers all around Australia. Our comrade Angelo Gavrilatis, who we've often had on the DOGS program, has taken on a new role with the Education International Fighting the Good Fight on a Global Scale. And Angelo is simply, quite simply the most effective and passionate fighter for public education that Karina knows. He has tirelessly led our campaigns on funding for early childhood, I Give a Gonski, and Stopping TAFE Cuts. And Angelo now has the chance to move his talents to the world stage with his new role coordinating Education International's fights against the global privatisation of education. You see, listeners, what is happening in Australia is not that unusual. It's part of a global movement because there's a lot of dirty money wandering around the world that wants to make profits out of insecure parents and their children. Now on days like this conference day when Karina had the privilege of working with AEU members from preschools, schools, TAFE, she says that she's filled with hope and optimism for the future of public education because the teachers are a union and each and every one of them are inspiring, passionate and dedicated to the cause. So Karina hoped that they would enjoy the conference. Now, she pointed to a number of challenges ahead. Teachers in Australia 
and public school advocates have no guarantees of federal funding for 15 hours of early childhood education beyond the end of 2015. So we need to keep campaigning for the vital investment in preparing children to learn. Vocational education is under threat from funding Kates to TAFEs and a privatisation process which has handed big profits to providers such as vocation in Victoria at the expense of taxpayers and students. And listeners, as we all know, in recent weeks, um, Four Corners has exposed the extraordinary corruption in this area. Our vocational education system is being sacrificed to economic rationalism. Students are racking up huge debts for worthless courses and they're denied their chance to get the skills that they need. We see reports of around 10,000 government-funded vocational students in Victoria who've had their qualifications recalled in the past year because of concerns about poor training and standards breaches. And this not only affects our own children, but those who are here from overseas, doesn't it? Now, this damage is huge and could become permanent if they do not act to protect our TAFEs. So the Stop TAFEs Cuts campaign and their work in exposing the damage done by privatisation is vital and it will be a renewed focus for the union in the coming year. Now, this is her history. And we're going to talk about the history of women in education and the women here in the studio, particularly Dale. And I'll have a go too. Now, Karina grew up in Streaky Bay. Where on earth is that, you might be asking? Well, it is in South Australia. It's a small coastal town about an hour from Sejuna on the Great Australian Bight. And during Karina's childhood, it was a community that was severely affected by drought. Work was seasonal, which meant that there was not a lot of money in town. Her father was a hand-line fisherman and the only income earner for the family because her mother worked full-time looking after Karina and her three younger brothers. So Karina attended the local public school. She actually had one. In Streaky Bay Area School. But by the time she was ready for secondary school, other children had started to leave as their parents sent them away to a boarding school in either Port Lincoln or Adelaide. They were the parents who had money, of course. So that was never going to be an option for Karina's family, and as the classes grew smaller towards senior secondary, so did her options for finishing school. The school curriculum finished at the end of Year 11, and although she could see that that wasn't fair, she could also see that she, along with the 10 or so students who were left, would be competing for a job in a local business. So frankly, Karina couldn't see the point of finishing Year 11 and so she talked to her parents into letting her leave school halfway through the year. Their one condition was that she had to have a job. So she began working for her grandfather as a deckhand on his boat, fishing for blue swimmer crabs. She was making quite good money for a 15-year-old until one day her mother met the principal of the area school. His name was Ted Wright and down the street he told her mother that they wanted to run a year 12 course but they needed one other student 
And was there any possibility that Karina would come back to school? It didn't take long to twist her arm, as fishing wasn't quite the career pathway that she had imagined for herself. So she went back to study in the Year 12 class of six students. Principal Ted and the Year 12 teachers provided every support necessary to make sure that the girls and boys were successful, six of them. It was like tutoring, wasn't it? Private tutors, a bit like being aristocrats. One teacher in particular, Felicity Wilton, gave up many hours of her after-school time to tutor Karina in her own home with her correspondent subjects. Karina was the only student doing these subjects and Felicity taught her how to research and how to write essays properly. The dedication of these teachers gave Karina a different future than that of a decky on a boat, and so that inspired her to be a teacher in the public system and provided the motivation toward teaching in low CSES schools. Of the six students in that year 12 class, three of us went into the teaching profession. One is teaching on the west coast of South Australia near Streaky Bay. The other's a preschool director in Adelaide and the third, well, that was Karina. Mm -hmm. And she's now the head of the Australian Teachers Union. She has shared this story with the people at the conference because for her it's a very personal demonstration of the transformative power of education. The teachers at her school didn't give up on them or say there was no point in educating them. They instilled in her a passion for learning and a belief that we can achieve anything if we put our minds to it. And that, of course, is what the people who are promoting public education today are doing. That is why we are here uh, in the studio doing the DOGS program. Like Karina, we think that giving children an education in our nation is that important. And that's what Karina continued to say. We're all here because we believe in public education We know that our preschools, our schools and our TAFE institutes change lives the way those teachers changed Karina. We understand that what goes on in playgrounds and classrooms and the work of our support staff, our teachers and leaders shapes the future of this country. Because public education is not about free markets or choice because it's about rights. Those teachers in Streaky Bay, our listeners, believed that those six children had the right to go as far as they possibly could. It's about the right of all children to get an education that values their potential and their individuality, an education that makes sure that their needs are met. Well-resourced public schools and the staff that make them work are a resource that benefits the community. And our public schools are unique because they are the only ones which are required to educate every child that arrives at the front gate, regardless of who that child is or where they come from. They are a universal option, not a fallback option. 
Real choice in schooling must include a decent, well-funded public school in every community in Australia that can meet the needs of every student. Anything less is forcing parents to pay for services that should be a child's right and it's letting children down. Public schools are open to all and educate the majority of students, but anyone who works in the public system recognises that our schools are disproportionately required to educate the most disadvantaged and vulnerable. And we have decades of experience in making a difference to these children's lives. A unique experience and a commitment unmatched by any other schools. These are incredibly strong economic arguments for education, how it improves our future workforce and our future prosperity as a nation. But fundamentally, there is a moral case for making quality education available to all. Chris Causey, who's the principal at Rooty Hill High School in Sydney, sees providing quality education to all children as part of a moral contract, something we owe to every child. If we are going to deliver the moral contract, and it is a moral contract, with parents in the community to give each student the best opportunity they can get, then we need to have needs-based funding and we need to make sure it's available in perpetuity. And she agrees quality education is something we owe every child. Well, I don't believe that they are right in saying we need to have needs-based funding. We just need funding for public schools and no public funding for private schools. And there would be no problem. We would have a first-class public education system, which is a right for every child. And Karina is correct there. So... I think that uh, Karina's got the right ideas and um, with Angelo on the global scale and with her in charge of the Australian Education Union, we are embattled and we have hope because they understand what the issues are. So we'll have a bit of a break now and have a little bit of music, shall we?
I have Dale in the, in the studio with me. Uh, sometimes you hear Dale and sometimes she doesn't. But Dale is always here. She is indispensable to the dogs because she has the skill. She's a very clever lady. And I'd like to tell her to tell you a little bit about her experience up in Queensland as a girl at school. And first I'd like to tell her about her, me and you about her mother's experience when she was growing up in Queensland because it's a very little known fact that most children in Queensland in previous generations never saw inside a secondary school because the private schools got their funding through what was called a scholarship system. Mm. Well, that's interesting. Um, Yeah, I don't know uh, too much about uh, how schools were set up back then, but I do remember, you know, I've speaking to my mum about how she was actively discouraged from going into high school. You know, the, the point that was made to her was, well, what's the why Why would you waste a space at high school when you're not going to use that education for anything? You know, all you're going to be is a wife and mother, you know, so you should main concentrate on getting your household skills up and, you know, how to balance books and stuff. So uh, she left school at about, she says, 13 and got a job uh, just working as a, you know, in a, as a checkout chick sort of thing until until you get married and then have children. And that was just taken for granted as the way it was. And so I can only imagine, I can only imagine, Jean, what you would have gone through. Like, I'd like to ask you, um, you know, how unusual was it for a girl uh, of of your generation to um, not only do high school, but then go to uni? Well, you see, New South Wales was different. Um, There were different kinds of schools and uh, we were selected out on the basis of a thing called the IQ. The idea was in uh, New South Wales and in other parts of Australia too that secondary education was pre-tertiary. That was Mm. an academic education. And yes, girls who were not quite so, quote, bright, that would be an IQ, say, of about 100 to 105, those girls would be channelled off into a domestic science high school, but they would get a secondary um, education. Mm. And the idea always was that the way would be kept open for the late developers to, if necessary, go to university. Now, I believe that this was done by the women teachers themselves. There were women teachers in both the... um, domestic science high schools and in what they called the selective girls high schools mm. where you went if you had an IQ of 120 odd. Uh, and and those women had been uh, educated before us. Mm. As girls, we were told that the world was our oyster. Uh, marriage might be an option, but uh, a lot of our teachers were not married because the men had not come home from the war. Mm. And in the school I was at, uh, we were made to feel quite special that the world was our oyster, that we were people. That's so different to what I'm used to hearing because, yep. you know, there's this uh, big this idea that in the 50s, you know, and, and how true is it that, um, you know, you would almost uh, be guaranteed to lose your job, if indeed you had one, once you got married? 
That happened in Queensland, but not in New South Wales. The women who were um, in these schools in New South Wales, and they were in a very strong uh, education union, the New South Wales um, Teachers Federation it was called, uh, they fought for equal pay. We were, we were very, very fortunate, if I look back now, uh, the women's lib movement, I think you'll find, uh, goes like a congratulative curve. There were the people who fought for the uh, right to vote at the turn of the century and then they came into the workforce in the 1914-18 war. They were pushed back into the, um, into the uh, house as a housewives in between the wars and, of course, there was the big depression. Then in the Second World War, the men didn't come home and they had to keep everything going mm. uh, so you had an again an upsurge particularly in in New South Wales anyway in Sydney um, of another lot of um, women who felt that they had to tell the girls that there were possibilities mm. uh, so we were the lucky ones just... there was much less of that up in in Queensland there might have been a bit of it in Brisbane and I do believe, to be fair, that in some of the nunneries, in some of the Catholic schools, the nuns um, gave the girls there alternatives. But the alternative, in fact, was to become a nun, mm. which uh, not all the Catholic girls um, accepted. Sure. But no, there was always very subtle pressure from all girls growing up in Australia at that time, after the war, that they somehow had to catch a man. Yeah, subtle and not so subtle. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure your mother would have been under that pressure. Yeah. Absolutely. And, you know, I suppose it's another form of social conditioning. You know, that's she was taught that that was her what her role in life was. And so it's, um, you know, it's wonderful to see her now because she's, a, you know, very much come into her own as an individual. But, um, you know, the, just the thought that children get um, gender binaried so, so young and uh, told that, this is your lot in life, accept it. That's, I'm so glad that's faded out. So, well, somewhat. Um, you go to any country town in Australia and you'll see, uh, you'll see echoes of it. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I think I, I was quite fortunate um, at the school I went to. I, I went to a state school uh, for primary and high school. Um, I was, yeah, the school uh, didn't have a uniform which uh, I always thought was fantastic. And uh, I hear students talk about um, how, n how uniforms equalise uh, each other so you can't tell the rich kids from the, the not-so-rich kids and stuff like that. Oh, yes, you can. Well, I, I, obviously. But, um, you know, our school had, had that issue sorted. That they nipped that right in the bud uh, in the 80s and... Uh, while we had no uniform, we had school colours and we had a dress code. And you didn't have to wear the colours, you know, but if you wanted, you could. But the dress code uh, included things like, you know, you know, sh skirts and shorts can't be too short. You know, uh, you don't wear, s no one's allowed to wear singlets, boys or girls. You have to wear T-shirts with sleeves. But my favourite one, my favourite one, that was the great equaliser. You weren't allowed to wear clothing that had logos. You're not allowed to wear advertising. And right there, that stopped, you know, the uh, rich kids with the Mambo T-shirts making fun of kids with Kmart T-shirts, you know. Suddenly, there was no logos. There's no brand names. Oh, how interesting. It was a perfect solution. 
and uh, I, I really respected my uh, principal for inst- instituting that. Where was this? This is in central Queensland in Rockhampton. The school was called Glenmore State High School and I went to Glenmore State Primary as well. And where was uh, – what year was it over years? Uh, yeah, it would have been um, – I, I started school in 79 and yeah. finished in 90. Yeah, so, been, oh. yeah, so throughout the 80s in, in Queensland. And um, while I suppose every – one of the main things that I, – I tried to look at the pros and the cons of the schooling that, that I had – and really most of the cons came from um, cons that would you would get at any school, which is uh, sort of individual teachers sort of having bad attitudes. You mm. know. And um, But that you can come across that at any school. But some of the positive things were just so uber positive and I, and I think you couldn't do them now. You couldn't get away with them now. Like, for example, for example where we were on the um, Tropic of Capricorn, the Great Barrier Reef started not far away, mm. and we the town was about fifty kilometres away from the coast. So, the somewhere along the lines uh, at our school, the teachers had decided, let's take advantage of these amazing things right at our doorstep, and it was compulsory for every student to do marine biology in year eight, and then when you got to year nine. And you had the option to choose it as an elective. So many kids from Glenmore grew up to become marine biologists because we had the reef right there. And um, in year nine, if you chose it as an elective, there was a camping trip out to Middle Island, which is an island in between Great Keppel and um, Smaller Keppel. And it's it's where the reef starts. And uh, you go snorkeling. And uh, it before, but before you'd um, actually go on the trip, you'd. The first semester was learning about what you're going to see and, you know, uh, just learning about how to identify uh, and what's dangerous, what's not, um, you know, what should be there in this type of water and all that sort of stuff. And um, then in the third term, that was when you went on the trip. And it was just, it was amazing. And I, when I think about all the kids, um, you know, every child in, in that school tended to um, choose marine biology. What a wonderful story. That wouldn't have been possible um, earlier. And this was the advantage, of course, of having having school-based curriculum and teachers who could uh, relate to the children and their community and their long-term needs and the kind of community that they would be getting jobs in. Um, it's a wonderful story. Mm. Uh, there was uh, a movement for this at that time but um, unfortunately, with with the uh, funding going to private schools, you just don't have um, that kind of and possibility. Al- yeah, and also when I think about some of the uh, excursions that we were able to go on, um, there's no way that a, a, a public school could afford the um, liability insurance to, to be able to have those excursions anymore. It's just too, too high because, you know, it is quite dangerous. You're taking mm-hmm. a bunch of... Uh, say, a handful, say, 30, 30 14- to 15-year-old students snorkelling in the ocean, you know, and anything, you know, can happen. It's the, it's the ocean. But, um, you know, there wasn't such a, a, a litigation-hungry public back then, you know. It was sort of just starting. Well, they must have been very watchful and careful teachers. That Absolutely, took yeah. Well, and yeah. also it was the same teachers who'd been doing it for the last decade. Mm. So they knew the place like the back of their hand. They had very good relationships with the um, the uh, boat owners and to get us over there and stuff. But yeah, every single one, every single one of my um, former school 
mates, you know, we we still talk about it whenever we talk. We talk about the, our trips out to Middle Island and uh, just, you know, you, you while you're in amongst it, you do take it for granted. And, uh, you know, I think it now as an adult, I'm so lucky to have, you know, been snorkeling around underneath, you know, mushroom coral, come face to face with a moray eel, you know, and we both scared each other and swam in opposite directions, you know, and just uh, being able to see these amazing things. I remember the marine biology teacher, Mr. Henderson, he was, um, he'd snorkel out that if he asked if there was any strong swimmers who would like to go out a little further. And there was a handful of us, so we went out with him just snorkeling on the top of the ocean and it would have been about six metres deep and he just, uh, we were treading water and above, uh, he's sort of giving us a little lecture, you know, and say, okay, so don't follow me but just watch what I'm doing. Uh, And he swam down about three metres or so, then turned around and he waved his hands in the air, well, not in the water, so that um, he could kick his feet and not move, you know, so he was just mm. still. And the uh, waves coming off his flippers went down to the sand and it touched the sand and suddenly about 15 more uh, uh, stingrays, sh- they shrugged off all the sand and just got up in this big formation. He could see them there before we could see them there. And so the waves of coming from the water, it hit the sand and um, obviously the, the stingrays, they felt, oh, there's someone there. And they just appeared out of nowhere, out of this sand. And all of us kids are snorkelling, you know, just looking down from the top and watching this amazing formation of bird-like fish, you know, just yeah, it's little things like that that... You know, you can't really guarantee you'll get an experience like that even if you pay for it. Ever again. Mm. Wonderful memories. Mm. And and the teachers gave you that experience. Yeah, Yeah, and went out of their way. Like they spent a lot of time and their own time, Mm. you know. But also there was a big, I remember, uh, there was a big PNC, you know. Mm. There was uh, a lot of people contributing because our school was one of, was on the outskirts of town. It was considered the worst school because, only because, uh, we had a, say, 50-50 ratio of what in Queensland um, they call themselves Murrays, you know, not Currys, but Murrays. And so our school, we were 50% Murray, 50% white, you know, and because we had that such a large uh, ratio of Aboriginal students, um, the rest, all the other schools, you know, would say, oh, Glenmore, that's the scum school, you know, but unfortunately, Academically, you know, we uh, we excelled, especially compared to the private schools. You know, more more Glenmore students went on to tertiary education than in um, the private schools. And you went on to tertiary education, didn't you? Yeah. Yeah. Tell us um, what you studied. Well, I, you didn't become a marine biologist, but no. I can see you still still have a love for it. Oh, it's, yeah, it's beautiful. Well, love for the natural world. And, um, well, that means you were well-educated. You've still still got a love of learning and yeah. um, ex- experiences. And yes. like you say, there are those, there's always those teachers that inspire you, you know, and you, you'll never forget them. And I remember Gabrielle Edwards, uh, one of my teachers, and she inspired me. Like she, And it's like Rob said, it's about, oh, what was it, David the other week, about, you know, finding something to relate to with the, with the child and taking your time, yeah, and then, Good teachers are great teachers, you know, but bad teachers can be um, devastating to a student. Um, yeah, well, I went to uh, uh, the University of New England in Armidale in northern New South Wales. Uh, originally, I went there um, to start uh, to do a Bachelor of Arts in theatre, you know, one of those you want fries with that degree. But uh, I dropped out 
you know, because I went straight from school. I was very young and then went back again the next year, dropped out again. You know, I, I had a, had my own little sort of political agenda and I went, um, you know, I went to the bush and did a lot of environmental work. Mm. But uh, then when I was in my mid-20s, I got the bug again and I really wanted to, you know, study because I really enjoy study. Mm. And uh, so I went back and, um, yeah, did my degree at uh, UNE. And it was great. Um, I'm, I'm the first person in my entire family, generationally, to get a degree. And my dad was very, um, you know, he, that was really important to him. Not not that he pressed me into it or anything, but um, even, you know, I was, you know, over 30 by the time I graduated, but he made sure he could come along to the ceremony, you know. Yeah. It was a big deal. Like, he never sort of thought that someone, well, because he was very aware of the class structures, you know, sort of someone from his class to have the opportunity to go to university, you know. And then your state school would give you that opportunity. Mm. Mm. Yeah. And yeah, and that's the thing, I suppose you sort of um yeah, you can tell sort of people who are in it for the money or people who are in it because they're passionate about it. And yeah, I I'm very lucky to have had some really passionate teachers that that sort of you know, when um you learn something, it's like opening a door to a hallway with a lot more doors to open, you know. And um they made sure that we all had keys to all the doors. Every any door that we came across we could feel free to open. And that's a big thing, you know. Especially when, you know, that age if you know, adolescence is tough enough, let alone um, you know, having to deal with adults treating you disdainfully. So if when that when adults treat you with respect it just means so much. Yes, indeed. Yes, if I, if I thought about it, um, you, so you were the first of your family uh, that went that that made made it to university. I wasn't. My elder sister went to university, and the idea of going to university was really very, um, uh, you know, worried me. But um, I assumed I'd go to teachers' college. But I went to university because um, I used to go for piano at Edfords and. Um, I won a scholarship. I didn't really play as well as I would have liked, but I still got the scholarship. And um, the the uh, adjudicator asked to see me behind the afterwards behind the scenes, and he said that he wasn't sure that I'd make a performer, but I would make a good musician, and he expected to see me at the university in two years' time. So I suppose that was why I went to university and against the wishes of my family and everybody else, I did music. And um, I had a lovely time at university. There were only 5,000 of us in the 1950s at Sydney University. We thought we were God's gift to the to the world. Um, but it was a meritocracy. All that mattered was that you got the the marks at the end of the, the, the time. My father died and I was terribly, terribly poor and worked at the Hotel Sydney uh, where they fed me and I learned that was the best education I ever had actually at the Hotel Sydney <laughs> and um, and then went to Teachers College and was sent to the outblocks of Sydney to teach and that was when I discovered the class structure. Wow. The people I'd gone to university with from the uh, North Shore and the eastern suburbs didn't want to know me but the children did. My mm. choir one year, Stedford. And that was when I discovered how important uh, giving children educational opportunities were, was. And um, I vowed that I would always fight for those children, and that's why I'm here now. You, mm. you, you just have those insights. Mm. I discovered 
uh, coming from a meritocracy where you were labelled as having a thing called a high IQ or not, and then you're expected to be clever. I discovered that was bunkum, that I was no more clever, certainly, at being um, a waitress than the people, the, the girls uh, from, from Redfern who were at the Hotel Sydney. And, um, but, you know, I've, I tried to fulfil expectations, I suppose, and at least appear to be clever or, or give people in academic institutions what they wanted. But, um, uh, yeah, I, I've always thought that it was so important that the young people who wanted to should keep learning and um, open up, feel confident and never, ever be put down by anybody. The one good thing I can say about a selective high school and about a university education is that when people try to pull rank on you because of class, you don't take it. Mm. You just laugh at them. Mm. Uh, And it's very important that we give all of our children in Australia that confidence that we really are and can be an egalitarian society in which everybody's ability to contribute to this society is valued Mm. and honoured. And uh, I feel very strongly about this. Mm. And it's only through an education system that is open to all children that you can do it. Um, Well, it makes sense, you know. A lot of the kids I grew up with have... um, a better, well, more of an understanding of uh, the local Indigenous cultures up there than, say, some of the kids from the other schools because in the 80s it was incredibly racist up there and um, they didn't talk about the the um, local Indigenous cultures. They talk about the Aboriginal problem and that's how they would put it, you know. And um, a lot of the, I've noticed that a lot of, as adults, a lot of the kids I went to school with have, have a lot more insight into um, the cultures up there. And, and a lot more, um, well, obviously, first-hand experience, we grew up together. So it makes it so much harder to discriminate. There is really, there is really no substitute for children mixing together with other children. And the tragedy of Melbourne at the moment is that we are separating our children on the most bizarre, uh, for the most bizarre reasons, mm. um, it's not just the bank balance this year mm-hmm. of particular middle class people. It's now on the basis of various religious backgrounds, mm. and I find this very, very sad indeed. It's actually frightening because that's, you know, that whole sort of separating children that leads to disdain. It makes it easier. The, the, the more filters you have between you and an other, the more easy it is for, to treat them like an other. You know, and uh, just you just reminded me. Um, like my school wasn't all good. You know, mm-hmm. though it had its issues. And I remember one particular thing because you just mentioned about separating children. That time, um, adolescence is tough enough. You know, um, but you know, in the eighties, they were trying to bring in kinds of uh, well, kinds of sex education, life education, sort of stuff. And I remember. Um, the normal ones, well, the heteronormative uh, mm. educational um, uh, t- topics, they were dealt just no- with just normally your, if you're in a senior class, if you're in grade 11, then, you know, that was you, your life education class. You did that just as the normal class. But when, when, they, dis- when they addressed the concept of homosexuality, they got, um, the, and this really sticks in my craw at, to this day, um, they got the Year 12 students and the Year 11 students, all of the life 
education classes, put them all in the one room in this uh, massive room to talk about homosexuality. Are you serious? Yeah. And the first thing, the first thing that they did, they said, okay, all of you who believe that homosexuality is wrong and um, shouldn't be allowed and should be illegal, get up and go and stand over there, down that end. All of you who think that it's perfectly all right, it's no one's business, get up and stand over the other end of the room. And all of you who don't know, stand somewhere in the middle. It was still illegal up in Queensland, wasn't it? I know yeah. it was done in Hobart. Yeah. And um, of the... Because, you know, the senior schools, to, all together there's about 240 students. Of the 240 students, I was the only one up the end saying it was okay. Now, I'm... You brave girl. Well, but I'm lucky because I grew up in a family of men that, and I got taught how to stand up for myself, you know, so... I've always been an opinionated <laughs> little rat bag, you know. But um, no, that's extraordinarily brave. But but you know, I just thought, how dare adults put children segregate physically, adolescence, like that? You know, because not only does it place you in your peers' eyes as a freak, you know, but it, it also um, that physical, physically moving kids away from each other. You know, again, it's that separation that um, makes it easier to discriminate. And, uh, yeah, as I thought that was just the most ridiculous way to deal with a subject like that. But I suppose it was ridiculous because they were dealing with it as um, um, mental health uh, people did for a long time as a, as a disorder, you know. Mm. So, but, uh, yeah. So oh, Queensland was particularly unhealthy. Mm. I um, Well, I mean, in my upbringing in the 50s, uh, sex did not exist. And actually, if I think about it... Um, it was so relaxing and so it was it meant that you were free to just learn and not work, not worry about those things mm. and i just noticed the girls that got romantic didn't do terribly well at school and um i was so poor i had no choice so uh, i i didn't um, i actually didn't even know that such a thing really existed until i was about 21 and i was married by 22 <laughs> but um yeah, I, and then I discovered that I had a lot of friends in music, in the music world, who who uh, were homosexuals, and they had to leave the country. Mm. And then I got angry, mm. and then I hit Queensland, and there was a lady called Raf, Doctor Raf, Raphael Salento. Uh, her daughter was an actor, but Raphael Salento was a um a very famous medical man, and his wife was DLP. And um, she just railed and railed and railed against uh, this thing called homosexuality. And um, it was very, very difficult for mm. people in Queensland of that, that kind. So I suppose I started thinking then. Mm. Um, I was forced into action. And the action. number of suicides of Bingo. people that I've known. Yeah, yeah. I was forced into action as a teenager. Like you were forced into dealing with these concepts of what's right and what's wrong. The first funeral I went to, and that's as a 15-year-old girl, when your mate um, takes his own life, you know, it's, and you know it's purely because he's tired of getting beaten up by the football team for being gay. You know, it's, it's one of those things that, yeah, either it lights a fire in your belly or um, you become complicit and treat, teach yourself not to care. Well, I didn't have the option of the latter. So, you know, I've been an angry rat bag ever since. <laughs> well, I suppose I'm a bit conservative in this matter. If I, if I was asked, um, I would say that 
there are some things that uh, that school, a public school, is the only place where children can learn. Mm. Um, they can learn the things that matter in our culture, and I think that we as teachers um, have an obligation to give them the absolute best that our culture has to give them and to keep their, their minds working and give them the freedom of their minds to think any thought that they mm. wish. Celebrate difference. Yes. But I, I think that there are two subjects which divide and cause problems. One is religion. Mm. Um, history actually does this, but I think that history should remain and long, long may it it be in schools Absolutely. to cause them uh, to have differences of opinion on history and to look at the evidence. It's important. It's like, yeah. Um, but um, sex education, I believe, is another one. I think that, that some things should belong in the home. Mm. Um, now, people might say, well, the parents aren't doing it. But I'm afraid at a certain point I just get a little bit conservative about that. Sure. We expect too much of, of our of our students, mm. and to have done that to you in any kind of school, I find offensive. Disgusting, yeah. yeah. However, however, we are very honoured to have you here, oh. <laughs> and I feel very honoured uh, to know such a person that would stand out in this way. Um, Ray Nielsen always used to say that the psychosocial pressure on people in these situations is enormous, mm. and it is a very, very, very brave, uh, courageous person who will stand out like that. He always did, of course, um, and it was fun to go and stand with him. But um, he'd started, and so uh, we're very honoured to have you here, knowing that you are capable of um, that kind of action. Well, you know, it's just an idealistic teenager, but nothing's changed really. <laughs> but um, that's one of the things I love about the dogs gene because, you know, I didn't uh, – I love the women in my family in very, very much and, and they've inspired me to different things. But uh, having met you and, you know, heard your story and, and, and your fight, that's, uh, that's helped me in, on my little sort of educational journey as well. You know, it's, uh, you, you, know you, you do your fair share of inspiring yourself. Well, this is this is the beauty of three CR, isn't and it? Yes, yes, it is. It is the beauty of three CR, and um, you know, you do meet people in life, and you meet them around here. Uh, they are very determined uh, in three CR that the word goes out. It, whatever the word might might be, it will be the word that the rest of the media are too frightened to talk about, or it but, goes against their agenda. Oh, yes, indeed. But uh, we are living in a very difficult time for public education and so our, our, our little program here and what we are saying is terribly important mm. because it's not for us. I mean, I'm old and I've had my... And I've had a wonderful, wonderful opportunity. Mm. We just have the obligation to try to fight so that the next generation, our children and our grandchildren, most particularly now our grandchildren, are not sold out by these economic rationalists, mm. plutocrats, people who actually are, <laughs> are quite evil. Yeah. But I think that uh, through 3CR and uh, through the underground media too, because it's not just 3CR, mm. people are starting to see that they have been sold something which takes us back to the 18th century and is very dangerous indeed. Mm. And like you said, uh, you know, it's not for you and you might say, well, it's for your grandchildren. Or, but I don't have children and I don't plan to have children. It's about what kind of society we want. Yep. 
you know, and that's what uh, the Northern Lights books was, that book that we spoke about a couple of weeks ago was all about, you know, sort of, well, Norway didn't become high on the uh, PISA rankings intentionally. They became high because they invested in their infrastructure. In their children. Yeah. Mm. And, and um, you know, so so the, the educational results were just by the, by the way. You know, so if you invest in you know, public infrastructure, you know, put the public money where it's supposed to go. In the public domain. Yeah. It's called the Commonwealth. It's called the Commonwealth. It's been around for a long time. It's been around uh, since uh, even the Middle Ages when you had your your rights of the uh, of the peasants, the peasants' rights, they, they were killed, of course, a lot of them. Mm. And then you had Cromwell. He wasn't so much Cromwell, but certainly the people around him, Ireton and others, they understood about the common will, the commonwealth, mm. and if the king let them down, then he could go too. He should go. Um, they didn't want any more bloodletting, but they were prepared to talk about uh, education for the children so that they could read their Bibles, admittedly, and um, they were also interested in um, in, in illegal aid uh, ideas. So you had these ideas around, and then the ideas came out, of course, in the French Revolution yeah. and the American Revolution, but we've forgotten, and yeah. we must remind people about all of these It's things. like a new dark ages, the Enlightenment never happened. <laughs> <laughs> well, it did. Yes, it that, did. It and did. that's why yes. the dogs exist. Yes, yes. So we've been having a chat today because tomorrow is International Women's Day. Next week, Robert will be back. We'll let Robert back into the studio <laughs> next week, but it was the ladies' day today, so... Yeah. I'd like to have told you about all the ladies in the dogs. I'd like to tell you perhaps another day about Sylvie and about Margaret and about um, about Dorothy and particularly about Sylvie who gave up the possibility of having a beautiful new home so that her brother and others could go to the High Court to test Section 116 and we have to make sure that she didn't do that in vain. Mm. Yeah, so, well, we sh- we definitely should uh, do some features on these women yeah. because, uh, yeah, too too many good people sort of get uh, relegated to the pages of history mm-hmm. and we should be using, being inspired by their examples. Anyway, happy International Women's Day for tomorrow, folks. Bye for now. Didn't die, says Joe, I did.
standing there as big as life and smiling with his eyes says Joe what they can never kill went on to organize went on to organize from San Diego up to Maine in every mine and mill where workers strike and organize it's there you find your hill it's there you find your hill I dreamed I saw Joe Hill last night alive as you and me says I but Joe You're ten years dead I never died, says he